Hello and welcome to Episode 2 of the Business Divorce Roundtable. I'm your host, Peter Mahler of the Farrell Fritz Law Firm in New York City. In this episode, we continue with Part 2 of my interview of Chris Mercer, one of the country's top business appraisers, discussing the current developments and controversies surrounding the discount for lack of marketability and valuation proceedings. If you haven't already listened to Part 1 of the interview, in which Chris tackles the fundamental issues surrounding the discount's applicability or not to controlling interests in closely held companies, I suggest you do so now before returning to this Part 2, in which the focus shifts to some of the New York cases in which Chris has given expert testimony on the issue, including the high-stakes Arizona iced tea case decided not long ago. So without further ado, here's Part 2 of my interview with Chris Mercer. Hope you like it. Chris, you were the expert and instrumental, really, in a number of cases in the last, what, four or five years? Yes. Starting with, I think, the Giamo case, then the, there's the Chu case, and Arizona Iced Tea, which we'll talk about, of course, the mother of all uh, business <laughs> divorce cases in New York. Giamo was a, was a real estate, some real estate holding companies. Yes. And, and you were the expert for the seller, the party that was being bought out. I was. And, and that was also true in the Chu case. Yes. Uh, these are both cases I've written about, both cases that went up to the appellate courts. I want to ask you first, is there, and, and let me just say, in Giamo, you were successful at the lower court level in convincing the referee, and the court that affirmed the referee at least in regard to there not being a, a discount for lack of marketability. And then on appeal, the first department imposed a 16% marketability discount. Yes. In Chu, you also were the expert for the selling member of an LLC that was being bought out for fair value. Right. You, you prevailed both at the trial level and at the appellate level. But... Both of those cases involved, and, and the 16%, by the way, is on what I would call the low end of sort of what I would say is the average marketability discount that we see in New York cases. Is there something different about real estate? Is, is that sui generis? Is that, do we think that has something to do with the fact that the discount in those two cases was either on the low side or non-existent? First off, let me question the average uh, marketability discount uh, in New York cases, because I think, at least by my by my observation, there are a growing number of cases where uh, there has been a zero marketability discount or a very small one. Quill versus Cathedral Corporation, O'Brien uh, versus Academe uh, Paving, Ruggiero v. Ruggiero, Edelstein v. Finest Food Distributing Company. Matter of Waltz Submarine Sandwiches, Zaloof International Corporation. You've written about Zaloof. So, and then, Chu, at the trial level, Jimo, and uh, I can't say that for Arizona. We'll talk about it. We can yeah. talk about it. But I think that some judges are being presented with evidence that makes sense. Now, the real estate holding company is... is is really real estate with a corporate wrapper. That's the, way, that's the way I describe it. And in every real estate holding company fair value case in New York, there is an appraisal of the real estate. 
the various pieces or whatever. Every one of those real estate appraisers, appraisers determines market value for the interest for the property that's being valued, and they will say that the company has been hypothetically exposed to the market for enough time that a hypothetical transaction occurs on the valuation date. I mean, that's just, that's just, I mean, that's the Real Estate Institute, that's MAI, that's uh, Uniform Standards of Professional Appraisal Practice. The concept is called exposure time. And so I argued, number one, theoretically, there should be no marketability discount for the company. Number two, I argued there should be no marketability discount because the real estate, hypothetically, has already been exposed to the market. Number three, I argued there should be no marketability discount in JIMO because you had here uh, walk-up apartment buildings that are exceedingly valuable and there are a number of families in New York, I learned through real estate appraisers and investigation, that uh, would actually salivate at the opportunity to value, I mean, to buy at one time seven or eight or 10 or 12 uh, units. So uh, there's no reason for a marketability discount. So you put all that together and I, I, made, I made the argument that there should be no marketability discount. Where do you see, if you were to look at the report of the real estate appraiser, where would you see the the effect of the exposure time in in the calc, in the in the computations of value? Well, what you'll see is that the the real estate appraiser has to look at has to uh, gauge exposure time that's appropriate for the property and the market that this property is in. And that's a matter of significant investigation that is part of the real estate appraisal process. In fact, when an appraiser, a real estate appraiser, looks at comps, comparable transactions, uh, he is required to investigate the exposure time that that property was on the market to determine, uh, for example, if it was on the market two weeks, maybe that's not a good comp because there was a motivated seller. If it was on the market for two years, Maybe there's a problem with that comp because it was overpriced or something like that. So that's part of the real estate investigation process. And and that's actually part of the corporate valuation process because it's a parallel exposure time for companies. Is that also true when when the real estate appraiser is using an income approach? Well, whether he's using an income approach or a comparable approach, he's he's estimating the value, presuming that the comp, that the that the property would change hands uh, on the valuation date. That that is crystal clear. There there's no reason to discount it, because that, that's the value. So anyway, the the uh, master special master in JIMO understood what I was saying. The trial judge didn't buy the corporate argument, but she did buy the real estate exposure and rapid sale argument, and I I don't know what happened on appeal. Well, I don't recall that the court said a lot about it. It just made the point that the ownership of the property is inside of that corporate wrapper, as you called it, and that it was appropriate to apply a marketability discount to make that. It wasn't uh, straight ownership of real property. 
So they didn't really say much, and that's been a recurrent theme in the, in the decisions in New York courts at the appellate level, that they don't say a heck of a lot about the subject. And, they right. de- and therefore, they don't give a whole lot of guidance to the lower courts, which has been a complaint by some lower court judges. Arizona iced tea. We can't interview Chris Mercer without talking a little bit about Arizona iced tea. Everyone knows the brand. Everyone may not know that it is a has been from inception a privately held company owned by two shareholders. And over the years, I guess they had their differences, ultimately getting into court, ultimately leading to an appraisal, a uh, hearing in Nassau County in which you represented the seller in that proceeding, and these were parties who brought in the best of the best, top-flight lawyers, top-flight business appraisers, experts galore, (laughs) and it really is probably the biggest appraisal case that I can think of that has ever happened in New York, and perhaps in many other places as well. So it must have been a very exciting case for you to be, and I, I think it's fair to say, Chris, you were the lead appraisal expert for the seller Amongst a, a amongst a bevy of experts, yes. The 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 selling uh, John Farlito's side had retained a couple of investment bankers who also offered opinions, but mine was the only formal independent valuation. And if I recall correctly, the income approach that you took and reported on, by and large, was accepted by the trial judge. Yes, this this was a this was a fascinating case, and it was fascinating that the the judge bought into the valuation process, and he literally broke the valuation, this discounted cash flow income approach that I used. He said, uh, "Okay, I'm going to look at it. I'm going to look at revenue, then I'm going to look at costs, then I'm going to look at the terminal value." Uh, there was a tax amortization benefit that was uh, in there. He looked at the tax rate. He looked at the key man discount. He looked at the discount rate. And then he looked at non-operating assets. And finally, uh, at the marketability discount. One through eight, I did reasonably well. <laughs> yeah. now, now we come to d <laughs> Now so we come I, to d Yeah. This, now, to put, to, you said it's one of the largest, and, and, and it's, it's no... I mean, it's in the decision that the uh, concluded value after statutory interest in the case was just shy of $2 billion for the enterprise. The 25% marketability discount is the same thing as applying, the math is, a $478 million discount. Now, if it relates to marketability, I promise you that company can be marketed for a lot less than $478 million. Maybe 2-3%, give them 5%, you know. But the court, I, I guess, did not uh, buy into the logic of uh, the justice in the Zalouf case, which came out just before, uh, tried to distinguish it, and I didn't think very well, unfortunately, which I wrote about, and it concluded a 25% discount. If I can say in fairness to the judge, I think at, at the time he issued the Arizona Ice Tea decision, he didn't have the benefit of any second department cases that told him that it was okay not to apply a marketability discount. You know, I, I, 
I have a hard time uh, knowing which courts are in the first department, yeah. the second department. And, but, but nevertheless, he's got B-Way, <laughs> and he had testimony that was fairly clear, and he had written documentation as to the same, and he listened to Dr. Pratt, who testified that the marketability discount should be 35%, based largely on reference to those same kinds of studies that I said screwed up the deal in B-Way. So he backed off and said 25%. The thing is, you keep, or, or maybe you keep hitting your head against B-Way because the bottom line in B-Way is that they upheld the, the marketability discount, although you're saying that the logic should have pointed them in the other direction. They, 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 they did uphold it, but it's inconsistent on its face. Yeah. And I'm not a lawyer, Peter, but uh, I, I, I am a businessman and I am a valuation guy, and, and I can read. But as a, a, I think a sitting ju- uh, lower court judge who's bound by the decisions of the appellate courts is going to be looking at B-Way and saying, you know, the court did, after all, say that it's okay to apply a marketability discount. So It's okay, Peter, but it's not mandatory. Right, and some and of the... It says that in B-Way. So anyway, the, uh, I, did, I did the best I could in that one. Ultimately, that case settled. So we didn't. So we, we we didn't get to see what an appellate court would have said about it. No, we didn't. Good, good for the parties. Disappointing for us in the peanut gallery. And it would have been nice to see what happened on appeal. So Chris, you you hinted at this before that you see, you see a direction in at least in the New York cases, as in their treatment of Delam, and I think you see that direction as being more open to the idea that a marketability discount should not be applied at the controlling level, or if it should be applied, it should be applied in much smaller percentages. Is that a fair statement? That's a fair statement. If you recall the, the Arizona case, the, the court said valuing this company at the financial control level of value. He adopted the financial control level of value put forward in my report. Did not adopt the strategic control value that uh, uh, clients' attorneys argued for, but he adopted the financial control. If you adopt the financial control value, there is no way that, and you assume that a transaction occurred on the valuation date, there's there's no rationale on earth for a 25% marketability discount. And, 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 uh, and I, I think that I, I have a new diagram that I'll, I'll write about shortly, but it, it introduces or relates the real estate concept of exposure time to the valuation of closely held companies. And uh, what you'll see is that all of the exposure time has occurred prior to the valuation date, at which time a hypothetical transaction occurs for money or money's and all of the uncertainties that people talk about for controlling interest have already been embraced by the hypothetical buyer. He's written a check and he now sits in the seat of former seat of the hypothetical self. So, um, Chris, if the definition of, of the fair value standard, if the fair value standard requires us, a court, to assume a hypothetical buyer, and I'm not sure you buy into that, do you? Mm-hmm. Oh, yes. All right, if you do. How does that jibe with the idea that we've seen in some of these recent cases that it's not 
unfair to impose a marketability discount where there's no evidence that the buying side, you know, whether it's a dissenting shareholder appraisal case or a, a buyout of a minority shareholder under 1118, there's no evidence that the controllers are, are going to be putting up that company for sale anytime soon. In fact, the evidence may even show that they have every intention of keeping that business to themselves or within the family indefinitely. How, do you, how does that jibe with a hypothetical buyer, hypothetical seller standard? Well, I think that uh, that, that is a logic that's been used in a couple of cases recently to equitably determine that there should be no marketability discount. I think that was an equitable, you know, an equitable decision on the part of the judge because uh, she said that, uh, you know, if, 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 if the seller is, I mean, if the buyer is not going to incur a marketability discount, I'm not going to impose it on the seller. And, and, and I, I view that as just one step in the right direction. It's another form of logic, but it, it, it does say it, it's, it's very specific to that buyer. The hypothetical buyers that we really talk about are buyers of capacity for the kinds of companies that we're talking about. Uh, in the case of the real estate, it would be it would be companies that would be interested in New York real estate. In the case of Arizona, well, there was there was plenty of testimony in Arizona that uh, uh, companies like uh, Nestle Waters and uh, Tata Tea and and others were not only circling around the wagons, but had made concrete offers at levels considerably higher than my valuation within a period of time shortly before the valuation date. So those were representative of the typical strategic buyers that were out there, which is why the Mr. Farolito's attorneys uh, argued for a strategic control value, because if this company sells, if Arizona sells, it will sell to a strategic buyer. So, but the buyers, this kind of transaction are hypothetical. They're the kind of buyers that can do it. They have the ability, they have the, uh, they're not motivated in, in, the, in the sense of, I have to do this, but they're motivated in the sense that if it's a good deal, then I'll, then I'll, then I'll buy the company. And, and the seller is hypothetical as well, because the seller is not compelled to sell, but would be motivated to sell if offered a reasonable price. That's how you have a hypothetical transaction. That's what happens in real estate. Every time a real estate appraiser has market value, a determination, and that's what happens every time a business appraiser. It seems to me there is a, a fairness thread that runs through some of these recent cases that have questioned application of marketability discount. If we put fairness to the side and we focus on is there em empirical support for applying a marketability discount at the control level, you have said, and I think we started out this conversation early on, you said there is no empirical support for that. Th those who advocate that there is empirical support for that discount, what do they cite in support, and do you think there's any substance or merit to those arguments? Peter, there have been some studies of... Uh large companies versus small companies, similar in, in, in many respects, called so-called match-pair uh, studies that have shown that the smaller companies trade at a discount to the larger companies. And some people have argued that that's a marketability discount. 
Well, I, I think that maybe that's just a reflection that the small companies might sell for lower prices than the larger companies. There have been a, a number of studies where people are trying to look at various aspects. I, I don't view any of it as relevant to the valuation of a private company because you can't get away from the fact that the methods that we use are the direct methods that we use. That would be a discounted cash flow or a capitalization of earnings under the income approach or guideline public companies under the market approach. Those methods yield control values. So there's no reason for a discount. If I look at actual transactions, if there's sufficient data for actual transactions of similar companies, there is absolutely no rationale for marketability discount because those actual transactions reflect the price that actually occurred at the closing of a transaction after all that long and arduous process has been completed. And so to take those multiples and apply them to another private company and then take a discount is a dip that is absolutely unjustified. I mean, for many, many years, the, the reports that I came across by appraisers who were hired as experts on the side of the buyers, they would typically cite the same roster of restricted stock studies and pre-IPO studies. Mm-hmm. From my reading of the BV literature, it seems like everyone's in agreement that those do not measure at the controlling level. Are there any other studies out there that recognize that and say this is applicable at the controlling level? Well, Dr. Pratt, who is a co-author of the Cost of Capital book, didn't cite any of them in his testimony in Arizona, if they exist. So I don't think there's valid evidence for a marketability discount. Because, once again, what is the base from which it's being taken? And and the base value that we get with a cap of earnings, a discounted cash flow, or a transaction, guideline transactions, is financial control. There's no discount from there. That is the value. The transaction occurs on that date, and all of the uncertainties have been resolved. Cash changes hands, and uh, the hypothetical transaction occurs. That's what uh, the appraisal process mirrors or mimics the exposure time, all of that new di- due diligence and negotiations and uncertainties and all of that and looking into the future to uh, try to gauge what, uh, what the future holds and the risks of the future, we put those in the discount rate. We get those in the multiple, and then the transaction occurs. Peter, I challenge my fellow appraisers in 1994 to write a compelling argument for a marketability discount for controlling interest of companies. And there's not one yet that I'm aware of. All right. So where, where is Stelam headed in, in New York, in your opinion? I, I've been involved in a number of New York cases now. And that has caused me to read a number, a greater number of New York cases. And I, I look at the New York cases and, and I look at the growing, what I think is a growing recognition in New York that we're out of step with the rest of the country on this fair value thing because the marketability discount is not allowed 
in virtually every other jurisdiction. So if the marketability discount is an equitable, is something that courts use for an equitable something, then say that whatever the value is, the discount's going to be 12%. But don't leave the appraiser sitting there trying to, well, in, in uh, Walt Submarine Sandwiches, there was no marketability discount because they put this sub shop, put an ad in the Wall Street Journal, and they got 150 responses to, from potential buyers. That was evidence to the court that it was marketable. They're looking for reasons to not apply a marketability. I believe the, some, a, number, a growing number of the justices are looking for reasons. I would, I would point them to be where it says may, not must. Well, Chris, I've seen firsthand and as an observer that in New York fair value proceedings, the marketability discount has, takes up an incredibly disproportionate amount of time, energy, and resources in litigating that issue. And, and yes, it's an important issue. We're talking about significant percentages of the value of the selling shareholders' interest. If you're successful, you're going to be putting a lot of business appraisers and lawyers not quite out of business. But of course, of course, I'm joking here, but there is, a, there is a kernel of truth to what I'm saying, which is that if we get, ever get to the point where the courts agree with you that there should not be a marketability discount, perhaps under, except under extraordinary circumstances, then these proceedings will become a lot simpler. Let, let me say this. I, I would not presume to tell a court what fair value should be. That's the job for the, it's a statutory job, and it's a job for judicial interpretation. What I would suggest in New York is that the existing case law is very confusing and needs to be straightened out. If a marketability discount is desired in New York, then then some appellate court ought to say, or the what your, what's your Supreme Court, your highest court? The Court of Appeals, New York Court of Appeals. Yeah. Yeah. Then the Court of Appeals, uh, I hope, would find a case and provide clear guidance as to what, how to treat the marketability discount. If you have that, then the appraisers all have a level playing field. Well, okay? we, we were all hoping Arizona Ice Tea was going to be that case, but <laughs> gosh darn it, they settled. They settled. That was a good. That was that was an interesting case for sure. All right. Well, Chris, listen. This, this has been great. Uh, it's fantastic talking with you on this subject, and I'm sure we're going to be talking some more down the road. So thank you again. Well, thank you. And so concludes my interview of Chris Mercer on the marketability discount, a topic that is almost sure to generate continuing controversy in legal and valuation circles. I hope you found it to be an informative and lively discussion. If you liked it, let me know. If you didn't like it, let me know. Either way, please be sure to subscribe to future episodes of the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or your other favorite podcast directory or RSS reader. And while you're at it, if you're not already familiar with my New York Business Divorce blog, check it out and subscribe to receive email alerts of each week's new posting. Until next time, this is Peter Mahler wishing you well, and thanks for listening to the Business Divorce Roundtable.